0: Father, you are indeed beautiful to us. It is because our eyes have been opened by sovereign grace that we see things that we could not have seen in the flesh. Men who are dead in trespasses and sins cannot see how beautiful is the thrice holy God. And yet, Father, you, um, by your supreme kindness and compassion... Have uh, given us a glimpse of the beauty that is yours. You are beautiful to us, O God, and we pray that our responses to your beauty will please you. That one of those responses might be hearts that are bended towards worship. Hearts that are tender and warm when it comes to this issue called worship. Hearts that are full of praise and thanksgiving and confession of sin and, and new desires to be more consecrated and devoted to the living God. Oh God, um, become even more lovely to us than you presently are. Our Father, uh, we have much that concerns us. Every chair is filled with a, with a human being that brings burdens and brings joys. But some bring more burdens than joy, and I pray that you will minister grace to them as they sit among us in this worship service this morning, that something that might be said or sung or prayed might give them a new, fresh dose of hope and encouragement. Father, our great enemy of the soul loves to discourage his people, or your people, and I pray that you will not allow him to get away with such an evil work. We command you, in the name of Christ Jesus, O devil, be gone. Be gone. Vex your people no more, or vex God's people no more. Our Father, uh, for those who have lost loved ones this week, I pray that you will touch their aching hearts for those who are in the posture of watching people they love go through the process of dying. I pray that you'll give them stamina and grace as this process continues to unfold. And in some of those instances, Father, we pray that the conclusion will come rapidly. Uh, bring it into to the suffering, O oh God, we ask you. Lord, thank you for the way that you have... Um, Provided for our church, it is because you have filled this room with generous people that our bills continue to be paid and, and um, the ministry continues to flourish. And I pray that you will that you'll multiply such hearts, that more and more will see that they will never, ever be able to outgive you, and that our giving is nothing more than a, an expression of faith and an expression of love and gratitude. To that end we give. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. And what was I able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger turned, or anger toward him subsided when he said that. When Gideon came to the Jordan, he and the three hundred men who were with him crossed over, exhausted but still in pursuit. Then he said to the men of Sukkoth, Please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted. And I am pursuing Ziba and Zalmunna, kings of Midian. And the leaders of Succoth said, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna now in your hand, that we should give bread to your army? So Gideon said, For this cause, when the Lord has delivered Zeba and Zalmunna into my hand, then I will tear your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. Then he went up from there to Penuel, <clears throat> and spoke to them in the same way and the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Succoth had answered So he also spoke to the men of Penuel saying when I come back in peace I will tear down this tower Now Ziba and Zalmunna were at Karkor and their armies with them about 15,000 all who were left of the army of the people of the east For 120,000 men who drew the sword had fallen Then Gideon went up by the road to those who dwell in the tents on the east of Nobah and Jagbihah. And he attacked the army while the camp felt secure. When Zeba and Zalmunna fled, he pursued them. And he took the two kings of Midian, Zeba and Zalmunna, and routed the whole army. Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from battle from the ascent of Heres. And he caught a young man man of the men of Succoth and interrogated him. And he wrote down for him the leaders of Succoth and its elders, 77 men. Then he came to the men of Succoth and said, Here are Zeban Zalmunah, about whom you ridiculed me, saying, Are the hands of Zeban Zalmunah now in your hand that we should give bread to your weary men? And he took the elders of the city and thorns of the wilderness and briars, and with them he taught the men of Succoth. Then he tore down of the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. And he said to Zeban Zalmunah, What kind of men were they whom you killed at Tabor? And so they answered, As you are, so were they. Each one resembled the son of a king. Then he said, They were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had let them live, I would not kill you. And he said to Jethro, his firstborn, Rise, kill them. But the youth would not draw his sword, for he was afraid, because he was still a youth. So Ziba and Zalmunna said, Rise yourself and kill us. For as a man is, so is his strength. So Gideon arose and killed Ziba and Zalmunna and took the crescent ornaments that were on their camel's necks. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Uh, According to an article that appeared in Punch Magazine, there are some 56 nations that have serious landmine problems currently. Angola has 20 million buried landmines. Afghanistan has 10 million. Cambodia, 4.5 million. And, of course, the expense of removing them is more than these nations can handle. So, the, whereas the, the war is over in those nations, danger, all kinds of hidden danger, still remains. The point is simply this, ladies and gentlemen. Chapter 8 uh, is, a, is a chapter that will point out for you that though the big battle is over for Gideon, there are landmines everywhere. Gideon has got his own landmine problem even after the victory. And I think you're going to find that some of those landmines he deals with with utter aplomb. But then there are other landmines that we'll see perhaps next week that will blow him to smithereens. What I want to do with this text, uh, at the, the first 21 verses, here's how I want to deal with it. I want to separate what I'm calling, in fact, um, one of my mentors is a guy by the name of Steve Brown. You may have heard him on the radio. He talks about side roads. Well, I've come up with my own term. Um, I want to divide the text into what I call side dishes and the main course. And there's uh, three side dishes that I want you to uh, take a look at. And then we'll jump headlong into what is the main course. The first side dish is recorded for you in the first three verses where Gideon has to deal with this tribe of Ephraim. Ephraim apparently was insulted because they were not in some way included or consulted in the midst of this uh, big battle. Um, Ephraim was a tribe that was second only to Judah. Um, But in terms of the pecking order of the twelve tribes... Ephraim was number two, but Gideon's tribe of Manasseh was way down the list. Um, And even Gideon said that in chapter 6. But um, you've got a situation where a tribe of Manasseh, uh, greatly inferior to the tribe of Ephraim, um, has led in battle and Ephraim got somewhat left behind. Now guys, with that in mind, what is it that you think... Ephraim was so angry about. You know, folks, um, people ever been angry at you? <laughs> I think a part of a job, at least a part of a job, certainly a part of a preacher's job, but of any job that has any leadership to it, people uh, have their critiques and criticisms and their little ires. And um, when they're criticizing what you do, you... you, you Sometimes you never really know the personal, the, the real reason. Because there might be something underneath it. You, you, you may never really find out what the real reason is. But, and I, the text doesn't tell us why they're miffed. Maybe they're miffed, but it is the Ephraimites. Maybe, maybe they're uh, miffed because they got left out of the spoil. You know, there's 120,000 men who are dead now. And there's a lot of gold rings out there on 120,000 men. Maybe that was it. But I want to suggest to you that that's not the real reason. The real reason is uh, Ephraim is ticked because the glory the glory of the battle went to a tribe that they defined as being beneath them. And we have a name for that. It's called pride. You know how people can get when um, when folks just won't stay in their place. You know? You know how people can get when folks get uppity. You know how those southerners can get when Certain races won't stay in their place. You know, they just get an uppity, uppity. That's all, that's all it is to it. Those people must have forgot who I am. No, ladies and gentlemen, that's not the problem. <laughs> people getting uppity. The problem is we're as racked with pride as was Ephraim. But I do want you to notice how Gideon handled them. He uh, turns to them and says, I know people like you. Thanks a lot for your offer, but it comes a too late. Expose them, Gideon. Strip them down buck naked for what they really are. He doesn't do that. In fact, Gideon plays the role of a masterful diplomat. What you see here, ladies and gentlemen, is a is a masterpiece of diplomacy as he deals with... Who, who could be... I mean, I couldn't have done anything that measured up to what Ephraim did. Oh, I mean, you've already killed the Midian, Oreb, and and what was I able to do in comparison with you? You know what he's doing here, ladies and gentlemen? He's performing a biblical principle that you and I need to learn, and we need to learn it really, really well. That is, if you're in any kind of human relationships. Anybody here in any of those? You know, there's a a statement that Solomon makes in Proverbs 15, verse 1, where he says, a sweet answer turns away wrath. And that's what you see happening here. That principle illustrated in those first three verses, a sweet answer. Have you ever heard of that? Did you know that the Bible gives you this piece of advice? That sweet replies will mute wrath. Now, guys, if you're in any kind of human relationship whatsoever, you need to learn that principle. Anybody married here? In terms of interpersonal relationships, that is a marvelous principle. Simply sweet replies in the face of criticism and anger. It's, um, it's one that will serve you well in the, um, in, in the building of human relationships. Let me point you to side dish number two. But um, do you know this, this statement that uh, David makes in Psalm 133? He says how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. I mean, you you hear that in churches from time to time. Oh, how when a church is unified, how good and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together. That's Psalm 133.1. Well, if that's true, the opposite must also be true. Oh, how ugly it is when brothers don't dwell together in unity. And what you find in all three of these little side dishes, ladies and gentlemen, is, is the family just is not getting along. This first one with Ephraim and now... Gideon faces Succoth and Penuel. Um, You know, it's one thing to fight Midian. But now Gideon has to fight Israel. He goes and makes a simple request. You know, my troops are tired. We're in this battle. Could you give us a little something to eat? And they say, "Eh, not not us. We don't want to get in this skirmish. Um, And by the way, Penuel and Succoth are are two very notorious spots in the history of Israel. Penuel was that place where... um, um, Jacob wrestled with the angel. You remember in Lost and his name got changed from Jacob to Israel, uh, the, uh, the prince of God. And then Succoth is the place where Jacob took his family and rested overnight before he had that very notorious reunion with his brother Esau. So these, these two spots have some, uh, have some heritage to them. But in the face of this request, both of them say, "Well, you know, um, we just don't. We want to remain neutral here. You know, it wouldn't be very politically expedient for us to choose sides before we know who's going to win the war. We're going to have to play both sides from the middle and uh, just kind of, you know, figure out where we want to go and uh, when the battle is completely won. You know, um, we're going to remain uncommitted. We're not going to be hot." We're not going to be cold. We're going to be lukewarm about this whole situation. And you know, guys, there, there are some occasions where a choice like that might be, might be wise. You know, I, um, I think you do too. During the political elections, you see these large corporations giving big donations to the Democratic Party and big donations to the Republican Party. Don't blame them. You know, they don't know who's going to win, and they sure want to have the door open when they uh, come knocking. That might be wise. But ladies and gentlemen, when it comes to the things of God, when it comes to the honor of God being at stake, we had all best get our little heinies off the fence. Um, you know, guys, I um, in my own life, I'm, I, I see this tendency because I am such a uh, consummate people pleaser. And sometimes that might be good. But it would never be good if it were brought into this pulpit. And if it has been brought into this pulpit, you people need to do something about it. Because there may be occasions where playing both ends from the middle might be wise. But when it comes to the honor and glory of God, you better get your little honey off the fence. You know the Bible is replete with that theme ladies and gentlemen. Jesus says um, He who is ashamed of me and my word I'll be ashamed of when, they, when I come in my glory. You know the famous one in Revelation chapter 3 when He says I know your deeds the church at Laodicea. I know your deeds. You're neither hot nor you're cold. You make me sick. That's what the text says. Ladies and gentlemen. I'll spew you out of my mouth. Kind of like tepid water to a To an upset stomach. It causes regurgitation. Tepid water, ladies and gentlemen, is such an apt illustration of so many of us. In frequent situations. I'm saying that there may be situations where that's called for and it's very wise on your part. But not. Not, ladies and gentlemen, when it comes to the things of God. Um and what you see here is gideon 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 becomes the instrument of god's judgment on a lukewarm people and uh, they pay a very high cost for riding the fence and so will you and so will i there's a price to pay ladies and gentlemen if you want to remain uh, uncommitted um And when Jesus returns and he's setting up his kingdom, it'll be way too late for you to choose sides. And some of you who think, I've got all the time in the world, I'm not so sure you're right. Um, Side dish number three, down there in verses 18 through 20. Where uh, Gideon turns to his son Jether and says, "Go kill those two guys," um, and which is really an honor that was uh, preferred upon this youth, because to slay some important person of uh, some per, uh, some important prisoner of war, it would would be quite an honor. In fact, for the rest of his life, he would have been known as the young boy who uh, you know killed the two big guys. But he's not man enough to do that. And um, because he was afraid and still a youth, says verse 20. And so Gideon has to do it himself. So um, Ephraim's a disappointment. Suck off in Penuel or a disappointment. His own son's a disappointment. All in the family, ladies and gentlemen. All of those are Family. And you know, there's no disappointment like family disappointments, are there? It's one thing to deal with Million, but it's so much more heartrending when we have to deal with the family. I'm going to tell you a story. Uh, it is so, at least it was for me, so moving. And, and, I, and it was told as if it were true. Now, I, I don't know, uh, but. I mean, it just illustrates the disappointments of family, I think. The story um, goes that one brisk Sunday afternoon in Boston, the telephone rang in a beautiful suburban home. And the lady of the house answered the phone and um, heard a fairly long pause on the other end of the phone. And finally, he heard, she heard, Hi, Mom. It was her son who was calling from a phone booth in California. Uh, the war in Vietnam was almost over, and he had been sent home from duty in Southeast Asia. And he had just arrived on the, on the West Coast and uh, was calling his mom. And she, of course, was delighted. And when are you coming home? I'm so excited to hear your voice. When, are you, when can you come home? And he said, well, I want to come home right away. But, Mom, I, I wanted to know if it's okay if I brought a friend home with me. Um, and the mother said, oh, that's fine. We'd, we'd love to have one of your friends for us for, with us for a few days. And, and uh, the son said, well, Mom, I, I think I better, let you, I better tell you a little bit about this friend of mine. Um, he may need some extra help. Uh, he was badly wounded in Vietnam, and he doesn't have a right leg, and he doesn't have a right arm, and he doesn't have a right eye, and his face is badly disfigured. And um, the mother said, well, son... Uh, um, I, I, I guess that would be all right uh, to have him here for a few days. And the, and the son replied, no, mom, you don't understand. This guy is all along. My friend is all alone. He, he has no place to go. I, I want him to live with us permanently. I want him to be a part of our family. And then there was this few moments of strained silence over the phone. And, and then the mother said, well, son, I don't think so. I think you should just come home by yourself. They hung up the phone, and about four hours later, the phone rang again. Same phone. And this time, the caller from California was a police sergeant. And he said to the mother, he said, Ma'am, we have a young man here who uh, apparently is just back from Vietnam, and he has only one leg and one arm, and and Ma'am, his identification paper says that he is your son. And I'm uh, very sorry to tell you, Ma'am, but that your son has just taken his own life. Did you get that? He couldn't face her with all of the deformities, and so he put her... He described him, himself in terms of a friend, and all he longed for was his mother's acceptance, and he didn't get it. There is a, there's nothing like disappointments within the family. You know, folks... um, I meant to bring two books to the pulpit and I forgot to bring them. Um, But if you have children, you and I are in a fraternity. You know some of the the disappointments that come from just being a member of a family. Don't you? You know some of the heartache and the sleepless nights and the sweaty palms. You remember that, don't you? I'll I tell you this story. I, in fact, I might have even told you this one before, too. But if I have, get ready. I'm going to tell it every other month. There are two books out right now. Um, and, I, and I recommend them to all of you. They're both excellent. One's called The Sacred Romance. The other is called um, Journey of Desire. They're written by the same man, at least in part. This first book, uh, The Sacred Romance, is written by two men, uh, Brent Curtis and um, John Eldridge. This book, excellent book, get it, grab it, read it, you'd like it. This other book is written by one of these two men. Only one of them, though, John Eldridge. Uh, Brent Curtis is not in this book. And the book, expl- in the side the book, it explains why Brent is not also co-authoring this book. It turns out that, um, that Brent and John had been friends for years. And they had longed to have their ministry together. They had longed to do something on a ranch where they could, they could disciple men. And so they wanted, what they wanted to do is ultimately buy this ranch, get a group of men, have them over to their ranch for two weeks or so, disciple them while they were there, rock climb, mountain climb, horseback ride, fish, all that business. <coughs> and they could disciple some men in that context, but they never could get the money. So on one occasion, they found somebody to loan them a ranch, or they rented it or whatever it was. They, they, they got the ranch. And um, so they invited their their maiden voyage, 20 guys, out to the, the ranch. And they were off and running. They were going to start their ministry together, something they'd dreamed about for nine years. It was finally coming to fruition. And in that week, with those 20 men, out one day while rock climbing, Brent, one of these authors, stepped on a shelf of rock that gave way underneath him and fell 80 feet to his death. That's why he didn't write the second book. And John Eldridge says in book number two, he says, I think I know why God didn't let us have our dream. And the reason He didn't let us have our dream is that because He knew that if we had our dream, we could be happy without Him. And I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, some of you are trying that right now. I know in my own life, I can tell you occasions where I thought, I don't need any more than what I've got within the walls of my home. I took my family skiing one year. And I was, we were skiing down a blue. And of course, I beat them all down. You have to, you know. So I was down at the bottom waiting for them. And, and I looked up that mountain and I saw Gracie, Megan, Emily and Susie. (laughs) And I'm at the bottom of that mountain saying, What else do I need? And I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, when the disappointments within the family come, and they will, we are utterly devastated. And I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, it's because we've all made an idol. Our joy is not to be found in encouragement from our family. The family can be pretty disappointing. But the Bible says that in His presence is fullness of joy. And I say to you, if you're looking to your marriage or your family or your job to give you joy you have an idol and all idols will disappoint you and you'll wonder why you're so wiped away it's because God in his kindness has removed an idol from you No, ladies and gentlemen in His fullness, His presence of joy. Disappointments from the family? Oh, you bet. But they shouldn't overcome us like they do. And folks, um, I'm not preaching at you. My wife and I, we've learned this the hard way. But I hope you'll see how wrong it is to try and find joy without it. Now, let's turn our attention for the next eight minutes to what is the, the main course, what I thought was the main course of this little story. Gang, a couple of weeks ago when I read this story, my eyes landed on a clause in verse 4 because I thought it was absolutely enchanting. The clause, if you've got a new King James like I do, the clause is exhausted but still in pursuit. <laughs> Now, I don't know what your translations say, but uh, I think the King James says something like uh, faint-hearted, but never fainting, or something like that. Exhausted. Exhausted! 300 men absolutely exhausted. But those suckers are still in pursuit. Is that not a beautiful picture? Is that not something that should stir some kind of adrenaline in us? How how unbelievably rare it is to find the people of God serving and chasing after Jesus Christ while exhausted, but yet still in pursuit. And I want you to notice what it is that brought them to this exhaustion. It wasn't disobedience, it was the exact opposite. It was a persevering obedience that brought them to the exhaustion. And I would say to you, ladies and gentlemen, whenever perso- persevering obedience exists, wherever you find it, you're going to find some people who are exhausted. That is, they will experience periodic exhaustions. You know, gang, um, the, Paul exhorts the Galatian church and says, do not grow weary in well-doing. He, exhorts, he says the same thing, or just, a, just as much the same thing, to the Corinthian church. Gang, the New Testament and Old Testament puts a very high premium on persevering. So high, in fact, that it makes it an essential. And we'll talk about that as we close. But, but in the midst of, of finding this kind of perseverance, you must understand that there will be occasions of periodic exhaustion to the point that my service to Christ seems like nothing more than a forced march. And that all takes place during the times when we're on the right path and being obedient. The flesh may lust for some kind of relief because the price of serving Jesus has, has gotten so high. But the Bible places a premium on people who remain in the hunt while experiencing whatever exhaustion that they might experience. Three quick things, ladies and gentlemen, that I just want to suggest are myths that exist in the Christian mind. But First of all, that exhaustion is a sign of spiritual defection and defeat. Not here it isn't, ladies and gentlemen. The truth is that God often allows His people to endure hardships and grow exhausted in the midst of doing His will. And I think the reason is because He, when we are the most... Faint, we're the least prone to self-confidence. So our exhaustion leads us to the real source of strength. You know, guys, you're exhausted in your service to Christ? Well, and very. let me ask you this, are you not exhausted? Do you not know what that means? To ever want to throw up your hands and quit? Then you're not in the right battle. Because if you're in the right battle, you're going to experience some of this. It's normal. But it must not be allowed to put us on the shelf. Second myth. Satan causes this kind of exhaustion. Not in this story he didn't. The two factors that caused exhaustion here were the length of the battle and the lack of nourishment. Gang, it's, it's one thing to serve Christ for two weeks... It's one thing to gird up your loins and teach in vacation Bible school for a week. It's an entirely different story to teach month after month, or, or serve month after month, week year after year. It's the length of the battle that tends to produce exhaustion. And you're going to need to eat much and often. And I mean by that, not not. The bread of suckoff or Penuel, you're gonna to need to eat, you're not gonna to need to drink deeply from this book because you know that man doesn't live by bread alone. he lives by the words that come out of this book real quickly. The third myth, and here's where I want to plead with you as your pastor. The third myth is that the results aren't really very important as long as we're doing the work of Christ. You know guys, Gideon had already slain 120,000. He could have said, that's, that's, that's it for me. Did a good job. But there's still 15,000 out there that are, that are alive. He could have quit. But um, the victory depended on him persisting. Even in the midst of their, his army's exhaustion. Let me give you an example, guys. I have people come to me and they say, I'm really burdened about my brother-in-law in Kankakee, Illinois. He doesn't know the Lord. And I've been praying for him. I've been praying faithfully. How long have you been praying? I've been praying two weeks. Do you know, ladies and gentlemen, that there are two parables in the New Testament, Luke 11 and Luke 18, that that encourage persistency in prayer? You know, the woman that keeps knocking on the judge's door, I need relief, I need relief. And the judge says, well, you know, she's not going to leave me alone. I better get up and do something because this woman's going to drive me nuts. Gang, you satisfied with two weeks of a burden? And that's about all you can do. I say to you, you've given up way too soon. Come back and talk to me when you've prayed 17 years. And then we can talk about how big the burden is. You know, gang, Gideon's men didn't turn around and say, Could you send in the substitutes? You know, I, I've been at this thing for some time now, you know. I didn't defeat the with the, the 120,000. I've done so much, it's somebody else's turn. I hear that so often, ladies and gentlemen, to, to the point of nausea. And my dear retired brother and sister, I hear it most frequently from you. I paid my dues. I've done my part. Now I'm on a shelf someplace. Let uh, Give me some relief. Well, ladies and gentlemen, here's a story that underscores the beauty of doing things thoroughly. But whatever it is that we've taken to do we persist in the pursuit even though exhausted and you know guys I do see illustrations of that around here I I think a classic illustration is the women's retreat that was done so well and it was a tiring job that was pulled off but it was done so well that ladies and gentlemen should be our model for everything we're going to do things thoroughly And we're not looking to the sidelines for somebody to sin and a substitute. I did my job. I let these young folks do. No, 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 no. Now, let me close with a theological note, and then we're finished. Gang, there is a doctrine that virtually all of evangelicalism believes. The name of that doctrine is the perseverance of the saints. And that's what I think you get an example here of the persevering nature of a bunch of people. It's a pretty simple doctrine. Uh, it simply states that the genuinely saved will persevere to the end. Jesus says in Mark thirteen thirteen, He who perseveres to the end will be saved. What, I, what that means is, If you are saved today, someday in the future, you're going to enter heaven. But it also says this. If at some time before you die, you turn your back on Christ and reject all of His claims over you, What that proves is that your claim to being a Christian today is a false claim. Because if the claim is a genuine one, you will persevere to the end. But if you claim to know Him today and you turn your back on Him tomorrow, it simply means that your claim today was a false one. Because you see, Christians, though often exhausted, we persevere to the end. That's quick. Our Father, I do pray that you will stir up within us a... A mindset that will reflect the beauty of these fellows here in Judges chapter 8. A group of men who, though exhausted, were still in pursuit. Father, there may be brothers and sisters here who are in their service to Christ, are exhausted, right this minute. And I pray that you would encourage them. That this example might show them that their exhaustion is not sin. But that the work of Christ does indeed tend to weary us, and that, but we are not to grow weary in our well-doing. Encourage your people, O oh God. Might they get back into the, the fray, those who have left it. And might those who are in it know that the reason for the exhaustion is to drive us to the real source of strength. Father, if you brought people here today who have not yet met Jesus Christ, might they see that He is altogether lovely. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.